0: How many of you um, get excited when you hear the word history? How many of you loved history at school? How many of you were any good at history at school? That's a different. What I remember from history at school is about three things: the Tolpuddle Martyrs, the Wars of the Roses, and Mr Wyatt. Mr Wyatt was my history teacher. said to my mother and father on one of uh, the the parents' evenings, he said these immortal words, he won't pass the O level and he'll never come to anything. That's what he actually said. Great teacher that was. I'm all right, I'm over it. I'm just working it out with you because it's cheaper than therapy. So I'll just (laughs) talk it all out. Well, I actually loved history and I got a B, so to Mr. wire is what I say. All right. But History, I think, is a fascinating, fascinating subject. And here's some kids' uh, comments. And I don't know how you guys did at history. Those of you who just done your GCSE, hopefully you didn't write answers like these guys have written. Here's one it says, The greatest writer of the Renaissance was William Shakespeare. He was born in 1564, supposedly on his birthday. <laughs> nice. He never made much money and is famous only because of his plays. He wrote tragedies, comedies, and hysterectomies. <laughs> All in Islamic pentameter, slightly wrong. Is an, is another one here? Johann Bach wrote a great many musical compositions and had a large number of children. In between, he practiced on an old spinster which he kept up in the attic. <laughs> Bach, <laughs> Bach died from 1750 to the present. Bach was—I love this bit. Bach was the most famous composer in the world, and so was Handel. Handel was half German, half Italian and half English. He was very large. So there's some kind of history examples there. But you know, one of the most famous quotes about history ever is, what we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. And I want to open up for you this morning. We're we're, we're calling this whole season for us as a church, right through into November, history makers. And you see, history is so important because history is not just about the past. History is not just about what happened in the past. History is about what we do in the present, which creates history for the future. You with me? Some people in the future will look back at us today and look at the history that we're creating now. See, history, we look back at the history that was created yesterday, but we should look at it in order to learn so that the history we create today is a better history than that which was created yesterday. And I don't know whether you know, I hope you do, but we are living in an incredibly important age for the history of the world. People who are far more intelligent than me, which doesn't take a lot, tell us that every 500 years or so, there's a cosmic, if you like, a global shift in history. Okay? And you think like the Industrial Revolution, the Middle Ages, and all these kind of, the the birth of modernity, all these massive, big, important uh, eras of, of, of history of the world are around every 500 years or so. And I don't know whether you know, but we live in an incredibly important shifting time for history. Just look at technology right now. Some of you here at the 9 o'clock last week, Rachel was speaking. She did a great job speaking on prayer. She showed a a video which shows some of the changes. You know, the average learner nowadays will have 10 to 14 jobs. The top 10 in-demand jobs of 2010, this was a couple of years ago, didn't exist when this was written. It's changing so much. There's a new blog... Created every second. If MySpace was a country, it would be the 11th biggest in the world. That's how many people use MySpace. Texts every day exceed the population of the planet. You know, it's like there's five times more words now than what Shakespeare knew. Some of the advances in technology and in information and education are absolutely mind-blowing. There's going to be a computer built soon, or they reckon, which will... Which will exceed the computation capacity of the human brain, and by 2049 could possibly concede the computation capability of the entire human species. That's a little freaky, isn't it? We're living in an incredibly um, interesting and yet challenging era. Look at look at religion. Look at look at politics. Look at the world security. Look at the global economic situation. And if we're living in a in a period of history like that, then the church is also living in a period of incredible challenge. And the church globally must respond or it dies. And I want to say that we as an individual church, and if you're a visitor this morning, you're really welcome, okay, we hope you have a great time, but some of the comments I'm going to make are just relating to us as a church and the journey that we're on, okay, so hopefully you don't feel excluded by that, but hopefully you'll understand why I'm saying that. We're living in a very, very important part of our history. In fact, without being too dramatic, I want to say this, in my opinion, is the most strategic moment or season of our history as a church. Really, really strategic. But what happens in the next few months is going to shape the future for us. Okay? Hope you got that. What happens in the next few months is going to shape the future for us in many ways. We've just celebrated our 30 years as a church and we've launched the third place It's a £10 million building development scheme. A project which we believe will change the face of the church and the town and the region and beyond. We're heading towards November the 15th, which is our pledge and gift day. And we want to invite you as members of this church to sacrificially give so that this project can be realised. We're personally going to make the biggest financial sacrifice that we've ever made to be part of that. And we want to encourage you and invite you to prayerfully consider being part of that. And to help us in that, we've just launched a whole series of home gatherings. There's going to be 16 home gatherings that I'm going to. I've done three, and I had a great time at each one. I really loved it. And uh, if you, you know, just a fantastic opportunity being in homes and great food, uh, which is great. So I'm going to be like the side of a house at the end of the 16 meetings. I know some of you are saying, too late. But there you go. But even bigger house. But it's a great opportunity to sit down in a living room with 15 20 25 people talk about the vision of the church talk about this gift day and how we can be a part of that and it's just been awesome and if you're not signed up for one of those if perhaps if you're new to the church or you've just kind of been missed in some way then please speak to Anne who's doing a brilliant job getting that together or we'll sign up at the back we'd love to invite you to one of those okay and over the next few weeks on a Sunday we're going to look at the bible for inspiration and for instruction and for motivation we're going to look at history in the making And we're going to go right back to the Old Testament and we're going to look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, if you want to try and find those for me, that would be brilliant. Ezra and Nehemiah, they come just after two chronicles. And um, why, why I want to use these books is because these guys and the people in the stories built something. Ezra primarily is a book about the building, the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the altar in Jerusalem. Nehemiah primarily is a book about the rebuilding of the temple uh, of the city walls and the city gates, and so when you put those two together, and this is really important, when you put those two together, you get the heart of what I believe God wants for us as a group of people. It 's not just about us in our devotion to God, the Ezra thing, but it 's also in the society that we 're creating around about us. You see god 's goal is not just that you and I have a relationship with him god 's goal is that you and I transform the world by the power of Christ, that the kingdom of heaven comes to earth as it is in heaven. Isn't that right? And so when you see Ezra, who was a priest, you see Nehemiah, who was a politician or a civil servant, put those two things together, and that's what I think the church is meant to be about. Our relationship to God and our relationship to one another. Our devotion and the society transformation around us. And so you put these two books together and you get this incredible story of people who made history because they built something. But it was more than they built something. It wasn't just that they built an altar or a temple or some city walls or some city gates. What they did was far more important than that. They rewrote the history of a nation. They reestablished devotion to God. And they ensured that the glory of the Lord was in the city again. How many of you want that? Reestablished that devotion to God, but they made sure that the glory of God was in the city again. And we are making history, not just by building the building, but by doing much, much more than that. See, I believe that if we're to do this and to be successful, we will become bigger people as a result of it. And I also believe that our community will be impacted in an amazing way. You know, we have this phrase, we say that buildings don't change people, but what goes on inside them can And uh, we're about to launch the food bank. Many of you know that we've been praying and working towards that. And uh, we were doing some training. Well, Anne and some of the guys were doing some training for that this week. So it hasn't even launched. And yet a family came in and they were fed. Isn't that brilliant? family of six are able to be helped practically this week. We haven't even started yet. If you didn't have a building, you'd have nowhere to go for that connection. It's not the building that feeds someone, but what goes on inside can. And we're just excited about all that God's going to do. So let's just dive into this and we'll just do a little bit of background this morning. Then next week Dan and the week after Jane will take us on into more depth and profound insight. Or not. That Dan's working on it, okay. So let's look at Ezra and Nehemiah. The nation of Israel at this point is literally in, in desolation. In 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon marches his armies into Jerusalem. They ransack the city. They destroy the temple. They break down the altar. They burn the city gates. They break down the walls. They take away with them into Babylon all of the bright people, the young people, the strong people. They leave the poor, the sick, the weak and the elderly in the city. And you can just imagine the picture, can't you, as they're driving, as they're, as they're driving, as they're kind of, yeah, in their mondeos, as they're, as they're heading out of Jerusalem with all the smoke behind them and the wailing of the elderly and the sick and the poor who are left behind, and the, they literally can feel the glory of God departing from the whole city. That's the background to these stories. And when we come across Nehemiah. Okay, Nehemiah is a civil servant, he's, he's a Jew, he, he's, he's a, f- a fearer of God, he's a God-fearer, but he's living in exile, and he's serving in the court of the king. And the Bible says that at a certain time, some, of, some Jewish people came to the court from Jerusalem, and he says, I questioned them about what was going on. Then in verse 3, they said to me, this is what he, they said, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. It's bad news. It's bad news. And then in verse 4, it says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. What what he heard that day rocked his world. Uh, And why he wept and why he fasted wasn't just... That he heard that there's no life of God in the city. There's no protection for people because the walls are down. There's no safety on the streets. There's no care for the elderly. There's no dignity. That wasn't all that rocked his world. What really rocked his world was all those things plus the fact that there was now no glory of God. There's no glory of God. And I don't know about you, but I think we're kind of living in similar days. You know, when, when, and, I, and I know everybody could say this to a degree, but when I read the papers this week about those two lads, 10 and 11, you read that? And what they did to those other lads. And, and I know that has happened all through history, but there's something in me that just said, this is not right, God. At 10 and 11, this should not be how people are spending their time. Where does the evil come from for that? That's, it should be a time of innocence, shouldn't it? Growing up into experience. Have you ever seen heard those William Blake plays? Innocence, it turns into experience far too young these days. And, and you look at the walls that are down in our society, so all kinds of things coming in. You look at elderly feeling neglected. And you look at the condition, and most importantly, you look at the fact that there's no glory of God in the city. And some of us, myself especially, we need to let that affect us a bit, you know? And so that actually, Nehemiah says, He wept, and then he prayed, and then he fasted, and that's all good. But there comes a time when weeping, praying, and fasting is not enough. There comes a time when you have to get up and do something. Am I right? And the Bible says that Nehemiah, after he wept and after he prayed and after he fasted, he got up and in chapter 2, he walks into the king's um, chambers, as it were, the king's court. And the Bible says that the king said, why are you downcast? We have to understand what this means in in ancient times. If I was to walk into the presence of the king as a subject and I'm downcast, in other words, I'm miserable, I'm in trouble because only the king is allowed to be miserable. And if you're miserable in the presence of the king, he chops your head off, literally. And yet Nehemiah was so moved by what he heard about Jerusalem and about the glory of God departing, that he couldn't help but be downcast. He risked his life by going into the presence of the king. And the Bible says that as he went into the presence, the king said, what is it that you want, Nehemiah? I love that question, don't you? I wonder if, if we could stand before our king, the king of kings, and he was to ask us that question, what is it you want? I wonder what our response would be. Got a whole list right now, haven't you? A lot of them, if I'm really honest, are about me, my life, my family, my things. My, I wonder, that wasn't what was about Nehemiah. When, when the king said, what is it you want? Nehemiah says, I want to go back to the city, and I want to rebuild it, because we need the glory of God back. Because you see, the walls are down, so therefore they're vulnerable. And the elderly are mistreated, and there's no safety on the streets, and there's no devotion to God, and this is not how it's meant to be. Do you ever feel like that? It's not how it's meant to be. And so the king released him and sent him back, and he goes back. And the history that we're making right now, okay, in these next few months, is about our devotion to God, but it's also potentially. About the transformation of our society and the part that we should play in that. And so, what I want to do in the, in the time that I've got left is just talk about history. How do we make history? What do we need to know about making history for God? It's great that our young guys are this week going to be going back to college or to school or to university. And so, it's a new season, isn't it? You know, and I, I, I mean, I hope that it's not just I'll go back to college or to uni and I'll survive. I hope that isn't the thing. I know that's a challenge in itself. But I hope that somehow those guys go with a sense of wanting to be history makers. Where God has put them. And for us as well. That we would do that. So there are three things that I want to say. or well, three things even. If I can use my teeth. The first one is that the history we make is rooted to God's prophetic word. The history we make now is rooted in God's prophetic word. Look at Ezra chapter 1 verse 1. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout the realm. See, Jeremiah, 200 years earlier, prophesied the destruction of um, Jerusalem and of Babylon's part and what's going to happen in the return to Jerusalem. He prophesies it all 200 years earlier. So we have to understand the history we make is rooted in God's prophetic word and God's will. Now, as a church, we believe that one of the major prophetic words for this church is your fruit will overhang the walls. Correct? You've all heard that. Now, we believe that that's not just a one-off word, but that's a word for life, if you like. That that's one of the foundational prophetic words that God has spoken to this church. But listen, you don't have to have had a word like that to know what God's prophetic will is for the church. You just have to read the Bible. See, the church globally, universally, the the Bible says that this is the God's prophetic will and word for the church, that it's to be a church of significance, be a church of prayer for all nations, we're to be a light on a hill, we're to be salt and light, we're to be a community of radical, inclusive, sacrificial love, and we're to be a church that moves forward and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Am I right? you don't need a word to know that, it's in the Bible. I want to suggest that if the church is weak, insipid, torn apart with division, dwindling, aging, and about to close the doors, that that's not God's will for the church. That's not what God dreamt about. And you see, you and I can say, this is the great church, or we can say, do you know what? We have a responsibility right now to make sure that this church goes from good to great into the future. Because if we don't, If we don't, then it will grow weak and insipid and division will come in and it will grow aging and it will eventually close the doors. And that's not God's will. And the history makers understand that our future is rooted in the prophetic word of God in the past. And also as an individual, as an individual, we need to understand that your history shapes you now and affects your future, but it does not determine it it does not determine it I wonder how many of you have had things that have happened in your past I can obviously remember Mr Wyatt the history teacher saying you'll never pass and you'll never come to anything and that can affect you and shape you but it doesn't determine you does it and we have to understand the difference between that so I'd like to use Dan and um, um, uh, uh, Justin come and help me mate little round of applause come on You know, I haven't, asked, I haven't told you about this, have I? It is new. Right. If you swap over, because I need to do it left and right, and I'm going to give you the easier time. Okay. So I, all through our life, things happen to us, don't they? And something happens, and so like we we fail an exam. Ever failed an exam? Yeah, yeah all right. <laughs> okay, or something happens and we make a mistake. Or something happens and, uh, you know, we, we do something wrong. We commit a crime or a sin or whatever. Yeah, steady. Or we break relationships. Perhaps we have a relationship that breaks down or even a marriage. And that can happen in our life. Something happens in our business world. We get into debt and what have you. And all these different things. (laughs) Am I getting you down? And over a period of time, all these things are like labels that get stuck to us. Okay? Now, are they true? They are, aren't they? Some of these things can be true. And so it's no good saying, oh, well, I didn't fail, because if I failed an exam, I failed an exam. If I didn't get what I should have got, then that's, that's true. But there's a difference between what's true and the truth about you. And you see, we can all pick up all these things in our life, all these labels, and we've got to work with them, we've got to deal with them. But when we come to God, you see, God says other things. He says that actually we're redeemed, doesn't he? God says that we're forgiven. <laughs> God says that we're precious in his sight. God says that we're princes and princesses. God says that we are more than conquerors. God says, what else does God say? Tell me something. Interactivity. What does God say about us? Tell it. Shut up. A royal priesthood. Chosen. God says we're chosen. Bought at a price, yeah. So we're precious, so, and, and and it could build up now. These things that happen to us, that labels, it, they're they're true, but this is the truth. Amen. And I want to say to you today that as we think, as we think about moving forward, it's great. As we think about moving forward individually, we've got to come to grips with these things and say, Do you know what? These things may have happened to me, but that was in the past. That does not determine my future. That does. What God says about me is the truth. Even the true things. Do you know what I mean? These override that. So if you've had a marriage breakdown. If you've had a difficulty. If you've had a a, a crisis of something. If you've gone through depression. If you've had anything in your history. It does not determine your future in Jesus' name. God determines your future. And you only have to look in history. You have to look in the Bible at some of the people that God used. And you look at the list in Matthew chapter 1 of the, the genealogy of Christ. There are two women mentioned, Bathsheba and Tamar. And You look at their history, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. And they're mentioned there because God's going to show you. Do you know what? No matter what your past is like, this is what I say you are. Your future can be different. Your future can be different. Thanks, fellas. <laughs> little round of applause for two willing Okay, the second, so I want us to grasp that as a church and as individuals. You know, I love it when Jesus looks at Peter, and who was called Simon then. And he says, you know, you're Simon, aren't you? And that name means read, unstable, can't depend on you. But you know, I don't see you like that. I see you as Petros, Peter, which means rock. Love it. And some of us are still seeing ourselves under the old name. And God says, I changed your name ages ago. And yet you're still living. Under the old name. Second thing we need to understand is the history we make is connected to the reality around us. What do I mean? Ezra 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. This is a real person in a real place at a real time in history. And you might think, well that's obvious. But it's really not. Because I think as Christians, if you consider yourself a Christian today, you'll know what I mean. We have the tendency to become a little bit unreal about our faith. And so for me, revival has got to be more than what happens when we get together for a meeting. Revival has got to be more than the good feelings or even experiences that Christians go through when we get together around the world or wherever we are. It's got to be more than that. It's got to be connected to the reality of life around us. It's got to mean that we we have help to make us better parents and better husbands and better wives and better people in the community. It's got to mean that we can deal with some of the addictions and the difficulties that grab us and pull us down like weeds in a pond. It's got to mean that some of the injustices in our society get faced and get dealt with. It's got to be real. It's got to be real. And what you're reading in Ezra and Nehemiah is not people who came together for a meeting. It's people in a real history, in a real place, in a real time, who changed their world. They brought the devotion to God. But out of the devotion to God, they transformed a society. It's connected to reality. You know, I know we can be too earthly minded to be of heavenly use. But we can really be too heavenly minded to be of earthly use as well. And somehow we have to understand that when, you, at the moment, and I know many of you, you're far more advanced than we are in this, in your own workplace, what you do. But right now, we're just grappling as a church and with our youth guys and with some of the other things that we're working with and working with our teenage pregnancy unit across the borough, looking to see how we can help. And we've been commissioned to deliver work in colleges and schools. And they're asking us to teach the kids about sexual health. I think that's amazing. See, years ago they would have said that the only response really is to throw condoms at, at these kids and it will all be okay. And Now they're realising as well that there is another way. And they're asking us, would you, would you teach them about, here's an idea, about delaying their first sexual experience? How many think that's a good idea? It's not very new, is it? But, for the, but, but, but we, we are having that opportunity now. To me, I think that's God. That's God. Wouldn't it be revival if, if that happened all across our borough? The kids were waiting for their first sexual experience rather than just giving in because they think that's the thing that they ought to do. And we have to understand that the move of God will affect us here. It will result in us you know, being touched and all of that. But it's got to be more than that. It's got to be more than that. It's connected to reality. And I love the fact that God uses Cyrus, the king of Persia, as far as we know, an ungodly king for his purposes. See, even a superpower is a pawn in the hand of God, aren't they? And so, I'll give you another example, Micah, the prophet Micah prophesies that the Messiah will be born in a little town called Bethlehem. Thank you. Uh, The problem is um, that Mary and Joseph are quite important in the Christmas story, as you know. They didn't live in Bethlehem, they lived in Nazareth. But that's okay, because one day, Caesar Augustus, the emperor, who thought he was a god, wakes up and has this really good idea. He says, I know, I'll do a big census. And the census will mean that everybody in the land has to go back to where they were born. So Mary and Joseph head up back to Bethlehem, which was where Micah prophesied Messiah would be born. You see, even a super emperor can be a pawn in the hand of our God. And so right now, many of you will know that we've applied for funding from a a government funding source and 150 projects nationally applied for this money to, to, to millions of pounds to build youth facilities all across the country. And we applied and there were 150 projects that that were, that, that applied and they said that we will choose the best 40 and they will go for final selection and out of those 40, 10 will be given money. Well, we're in that final 40. So we're better than 110 other projects in their opinion. And I have no qualms at going for that at all. No qualms believing that if that's God's will, that God could use that to release funding for his purposes. They want to build world-class youth facilities that provide a safe environment so young people in our community can get help and hope. I mean, would we sign up for that or what? Now, it will mean we have to work with lots of other people. It will mean we won't be able to do certain things in the way that we would want to do them at that point. But it does not constrain us of being who we are. They know who we are. They know we're Christians. They know what motivates us. And if it's God's will, then wouldn't that be an awesome thing? So I want you to pray for that. If we're successful, we'll know by the end of December and it'll be just under two million pounds. It means that we can go to the to, to site for the first phase for the back block, pretty much. It's a three million pound back block, pretty much with other money that we can get together, hopefully. Then hopefully we can do that. Did you see that? Subliminal, that was. So I want, you to, I want you to pray for that. And also pray for the fact that right now, we're having to have meetings with very influential people across the borough. Please pray that God would move their hearts. It doesn't matter whether they know him or not. But God would move their hearts. Okay? Would you pray for that? Please. So what's happening is that, that history is connected to the reality around them. See, we need to understand this. Even when we're in exile, God isn't. You know that? See, they were in exile, and they think, oh, we're in exile. That means God's in exile. No, God's not in exile. Even when you're under a foreign king, God isn't. Even when you are weak and you lost your power, God hasn't. And we have to understand that. That God is bigger than any... You know, when we meet important people, God is bigger than them. You know, God's got a higher office than anyone we can meet with on this planet. And we haven't got to be intimidated by that because we recognize that our boss, our leader, our Lord is far higher and far greater. And we pray for those in authority. That's what God has told us to do. But we recognize that the ultimate authority belongs to Him. So history making is connected to reality. And finally, the history we make is grounded by our willingness to respond. You see, we can want to make history, but wanting to make history will not make history. We have to move from wanting it to be willing for it to happen, to move from the want to the will. You know, I had a meal with a friend of mine recently, and we were talking about a book he was reading, and I want to read the book myself. Not a Christian book, but it's, it's a book about change and why people change and why people don't change. And one of the things he quotes in the book is that they did this study in the health system of people who've gone to see the doctor or gone to consultants and been told pretty horrendous information. The basically that something like this: unless you stop doing that. Or unless you start doing that, your health situation will deteriorate and you will probably die. Okay? It's pretty bad news, yeah? But, it's not all that bad, because the thing is, if you were to change, it may not happen like that. Do you know what? One out of eight people change. That's the statistical data. And, and as, as we were talking about that, I thought, crikey, you know, you're told that, you know, unless you go on a diet or unless you do that or unless you do that, you will die. And only one out of eight change. And then I thought, where would I be? Because we can all want it, but do we want, to, want it enough to actually make it happen? You see, history will not be made by people who want it, it will be made by people who are willing to do it. And to make it happen. And to ground it in our willingness to respond. You see, we all love the idea of sacrifice until it comes to doing it. We all want to pay the cost until we have to pay the cost. We all want to be willing to be history makers until it means we've got to cut some things out of our life. We've got to pay the cost. Alison and myself are thinking about this financial commitment that we want to make. And it will be the biggest financial commitment sacrifice that we've ever made. And I want it. And we both want it and sometimes we get excited to say, yeah, let's do more, let's do more. And then Alison, who's very wise, will remind me what that means. And I want it until I think about what it's actually going to mean. Do you know what I mean? And I think, actually, do I really want it? I I, kind of do want it, but am I willing, am I willing to pay it? Am I willing to lay things down in order to do that, which I really do want to do? And it says in Ezra chapter 1 verse 5, everyone whose heart God moved, prepared to go up and build. It's one of my favourite verses in the Bible. Everyone whose heart, God moved, prepared to go up and build. And I looked at that and I thought, does that verse mean that everyone had their heart moved and they all went and built? Or does it mean everyone that had their heart moved by God, they went and built, the rest didn't? I don't really know the answer. But I want to suggest... That over the next few weeks, what we want to do is we want to share what we believe the Bible says. We want to share from our hearts and we want to encourage you to engage with God. And to let God move your heart so that you are part of the everyone who goes and builds. And if we do that, and if there's enough of us that will do that, and as I say in the homings, it isn't about how much money that you give. It really isn't about that. We, we have this phrase that is kind of, a bit of a mantra to us now. It's like, you know, not equal gifts but equal sacrifice. To some people, a hundred pounds is an incredible sacrifice. A lot of people in this room would never miss that out of their budget. It's not about equal gifts. It's about equal sacrifice. And if everyone responds to God and has their heart moved and he's prepared to go out and build, we can make history. We can make history. You know, Towards the end of his um, uh, career, Michael Jordan, the... Basketball player who played for the Chicago Cubs. He he um, he had this. Uh, he, he was amazing basketball player, as you know. And, and he, he um, everyone used to say that right towards the end, uh, end of a game in basketball, it can, in the last few seconds, the whole game can change. So in the last few few seconds of a really tight game, they used to say, "Whatever you do, get the ball to Michael Jordan." Partly because he's the best player, but mostly because he was the one that was shouting for the ball. You see, when it really came down to it, and it was like, we could win or lose, a lot of people don't want the responsibility of the ball. But Michael Jordan did. So even if it was like, if I miss this one, we lose, he still wanted the ball. And I believe that God is looking for people who want the ball. I believe he always has been, don't you? And so Isaiah in Isaiah 6 says, here I am, Lord, send me. Contrast that with Moses and with Gideon, who first off said, here I am, Lord, send anyone else. Didn't they? That's, that's pretty much what they said. You know, uh, yeah, that, that'd be great. He, he'd be good. But Isaiah said, here I am, send me. So David, the young lad David, pitches up at the battle with his sandwiches for his older brothers who were fighting the enemy. And he gets there and they're not fighting the enemy. They're all in fear. And he hears Goliath shout and he says, someone give me the ball. Someone give me the ball so I can sort this bloke out. He's defying the name of the Lord, and you know we can all decry the state of our society, and we can all decry the spiritual state of our nation. But I tell you what, we've got to get the ball. Some of us have got to stop decrying everything else and say, "I'll take responsibility. I'll take responsibility. Give me the ball." And I believe that when all of us, or when many of us, do that, we can make history. Let's pray.